today is the eighth day of Christmas. So Christmas is a 12-day-long season. You know the song on the first day of Christmas, second, 12 days of Christmas. So if you're new to this kind of church, that song is this, is this song that goes back to how Christians have celebrated Christmas. We celebrate Christmas for 12 days. Now, most of us normal people, our birthday lasts one day. There's one person over there who thinks her birthday lasts a week. I won't name her. Um, But most of us, most of us know that a birthday is worth celebrating. And, and, you know, if Jack were to say, hey, today's my birthday, um, all of a, anybody met and said it would be like, oh, happy birthday. If Jack were to say, though, today is the eighth day of my birthday, then we would look at him and think, well, okay. <laughs> Why is it that we set apart 12 days um, to celebrate the birth of Jesus? What, what is it about Jesus that deserves that? Part of what Matthew is doing in his gospel, in Matthew chapter 2, is he's showing us some things about the birth of Jesus that when you see them, it's quite natural to say, oh, this takes some time to celebrate. This is worth more than the average birth. Notice what what is going on here. Look in verse 1, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. When the Magi show up after the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, In the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And when they find him, after a little bit of drama, down in verse 11, when the Magi find Jesus, they present Jesus, the baby Jesus, with gifts particular gifts, gifts that were traditionally used in these cultures to honor a king. The point that Matthew is presenting us is that baby Jesus in the manger is not this cute, harmless, eight pounds, six ounces, you know, infant wrapped in fleece diapers. He is the king. He's the king of kings. He's the soul creator of the universe, and he's come in flesh. Now, obviously, not everyone believes that. Not everyone in this room believes that. Not everyone in this city, not everyone in the world believes that. Not even everyone in this story believes that Jesus, who was born here, is the one true God in the flesh. But Recognizing this, recognizing that scripture presents Jesus, Christianity presents Jesus as God. This is a very important thing. The the Christian claim is that this child whom Herod in this story is raging against, this child that Herod sees as a threat to his own life, This child is the king, and he reigns. And he's a threat not just to Herod's selfish agenda. He's a threat to every selfish agenda, that he reigns everywhere, 
that he is the one and only God. And if you come to see that Christ is the one and only true God, then it makes sense in verse 11 that the Magi, when they saw him, they fell down and worshipped him. Now just think about that image for a minute. Think about all of the babies you've seen. Think about all of the times you've seen a baby for the first time and all of the natural reactions. Ooh, not as cute as my babies. <laughs> Definitely cuter than my babies. Whatever your reactions are, all of these appropriate reactions. When we lived in England, a typical reaction was, he looks like a little sausage. I could just eat him up. <laughs> Which I guess culturally works, and in other cultures it's kind of creepy, right? <laughs> but in every culture, we have these responses to babies that are, at, that are, that are logical. They, they make sense, they're appropriate. Look at this response. They fell down and worshipped him. Because he's God. Because he's the king. Now, have you done that? This Christmas, in all the hoopla, in all the great traditions, in all the fun, have you fallen before Jesus and worshipped him? Will you do that? Will you do that this year? And, and think about what Christianity is holding up here. It's saying that God is not a vague, abstract God. He's not some generic, faceless, higher power. That Jesus is God. Now look, if as I'm saying this, you have doubts, don't turn away from them. Don't scuttle them under the rocks. Don't pull back in fear from them. If me just now doubling down that that baby was God, if at any moment in there you felt yourself kind of getting uneasy with that and feeling doubts about that, don't turn away from that. Turn into those doubts. Pull them out. Pull that thread. Face it. Because if this is true, if Jesus is God, if he is the one that made everything, if he is the creator, if he's God, then it really does matter how you're thinking about that. I mean, think about if for the first time you discovered you were adopted and you met a man who claimed to be your dad. Would you be like, yeah. Or would you kind of like say, oh, I need to look into this. Now just exponentially invest. If, if Jesus is God, you need to know about that. If this story is true, that, that God is not a vague kind of gas somewhere out there in the universe, but he actually took on flesh, 
if this is true, then what a great thing for you to do this year is to find all those little threads of doubt that have come into your life about that and to face them. Surely if he's God, that won't insult him, right? If, if, if somebody comes to you and says, oh, I am your real father, whatever. If somebody comes to you and says, I'm your real father, and, and you're like, oh, I'm not sure if I believe that, what kind of father would be insulted that you've got questions? Like, God can handle this. Is your, is your doubt located in, that just don't make sense that God would take on flesh. I can't, like, that's just goofy. Well, then look into that. Talk to people. If your doubts are more in the area of, um, how do I even know that the Bible is telling the truth? Can it just be a bunch of like uh, words produced by a group of people over time? And maybe there's something in there that's true, but how, then look into that. Pull on those threads. Turn into them. Part of what the Bible goes on to say is that sorting this out is the key to becoming truly human. To really becoming a full human being. Don't settle for easy answers. Now, we should be very careful here. Some people obviously do not believe that Jesus is king. Some people sort of believe that he's God, he's king. Others have this deep faith with a profound confidence. But whoever we are, all of us must be on guard at this moment with catching only half the fish. There's something else Matthew is showing us. He's not only showing us this, this baby is God, it's God in the flesh. He's also showing us about the type of king God in the flesh is. Look again at the first verse, the, 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 first, uh, verse, the first verse of chapter 2. <laughs> Sorry. Now, after Jesus was born, is anybody following along in their Bible? Was born in where? In Bethlehem of Judea. Now, here's what you need to know. If Bethlehem wasn't told in the Bible, you wouldn't know anything about it. It was a tiny, little bitty, insignificant, obscure place. It was so small, it didn't even register as a dot on the map. Now look at the last verse of chapter 2. Verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called, anybody following along? Nazareth that what was spoken about by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Again, Nazareth is also little, obscure, insignificant, so small, it wasn't a dot on the map. Um, in fact, to call someone a Nazarene, now here's a little trick. Some, some people who are familiar with the Bible get confused and they think um, a Nazarite, that's a whole nother thing in the Bible. To be called a Nazarene in that day was slang. It was derogatory. It was like saying somebody is uneducated or ignorant or has a full head of hair. Just clearly. Um, so think about this. Matthew begins the chapter describing the birth of Jesus. He begins it, verse 2 
talking about Jesus born in obscurity. Verse 23, he ends it by pointing out that he grew up in obscurity. Let me show you one more thing about this. In verse 2, Jesus is referred to as the king of the Jews. And then in verse 3, Herod is referred to as the king of the Jews. Doesn't normally work well, right? When there's two kings. After verse 3, so it sets up this tension. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Herod's the king of the Jews. And then after, after Herod's identified as the king of the Jews, Jesus is not referred to as king again. Instead, all the references to him are as the child. In fact, no less than five times he's referred to as the child. What is Matthew doing as he writes the literature this way? What he's doing is he's trying to emphasize that Jesus is not an ordinary king. Jesus is meek. He's lowly. He's humble. So think about it, right? Jesus, where is he born? King of the Jews. Herod the king. And then in the literature, the way he writes it, every time after that, he refers to him as the child. Not, oh no, Jesus is king. Not puffing out the chest. But doubling down on his lowliness. Now, what happens in the book of Matthew is that this becomes, in case you think I'm making a lot out of a little... This actually grows over the course of Matthew's gospel. It it becomes a major theme in Matthew's gospel. In chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus tells us, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and, anybody know this verse? Lowly. I'm lowly. In chapter 21, verse 4, we're told, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. When Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem, he's, he's just about to be killed. He's not on the white stallion of a powerful monarch. He's on a donkey, the animal of a servant. Now, Matthew wrote this biography of Jesus around 45 to 55 years after Jesus was born. So about 10 to 20 years after his death. And he's writing this gospel for a cluster of Christian communities probably located in modern-day Syria. And he's drawing out themes from the life of Jesus. And he's using the life of Jesus to encourage these early Christians to live by the conviction that since their God, their Lord, their King was born in obscurity, grew up in obscurity, carried out his entire ministry as a lowly, humble, meek, servant of God, and went to his death as a lowly, meek servant. What is he doing with this? How would that impact you? 
Matthew's encouraging these Christians. Um, he's, and, and through him, God is calling us, the church of the incarnation, to live like Jesus. To live our lives in the same way as Christ. Through scripture, God is telling us, if meekness was the form of life that Jesus led, then it must be the form of life that we lead. This year, what will it look like for you to pursue lowliness as a way of life? What will be different about your social media interactions, your work life, your relationships with neighbors, your relationship to political parties that you disagree with? What will it look like for you to be a citizen in this city this year if you pursue the way of life of Jesus, a, a life of lowliness and servanthood and forgiveness and obscurity and meekness? I wish that I could lodge that all the way down in your heart. Not long after I graduated with my PhD, I was at an academic conference in New Orleans. And I was walking through the French Quarter with my mentor, my doctoral supervisor. And I was getting these opportunities. And I was trying to decide which path in life to take. Am I going to be a pastor? Am I going to be a professor? Am I going to take this writing opportunity? Am I going to do this? And we're walking along, and my, my mentor was, is a guy named Craig Bartholomew, and he said, Aubrey, whatever choice you make in life, remember, we must pursue obscurity. And what a gift it was for me, for my mentor, in the right moment, to point me toward meekness and obscurity. Has that ever landed in your heart? Today's a great day for it to. Seek obscurity. Seek meekness. Why? Because our Lord did. Because our King did. You know where this has been the hardest for me? I've pulled it off in a lot of places. There have been multiple times I've had opportunities that I could see the way of Christ for me was the obscure way, not the glory way. But the place it's been the hardest for me is as a parent. I've failed miserably. In parenting, I have constantly struggled with meekness. As a father, I have so quickly gone beyond the proper power that I have in the life of my children. I have been too quick to ignore their freedom as I played the tyrant. It 
if this was an AA group and the mic now came to you, hello, my name is so-and-so. I'm a power addict. Where does it play out in your life? Where this year can you turn to the face of Christ and with his grace and with his patience and with his kindness pursue meekness? Stop trying to change the world. Stop trying to force others. Meekness boils down to Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall, anybody know? Inherit the earth. That's what it really boils down to. It really boils down to this. Do you believe that? Do you believe, God, that the way to get what you want is to patiently wait for him to do it? Or do you grab it by yourself? Do you really believe that the meek will inherit the earth? It takes faith to believe that because everything staring us in the face says that's not true, right? It takes faith to believe it because what we see says no, 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 no. This is where push comes to shove for the Christian faith. This is the sucker punch that follows Christ is king. It's Christ is the lowly king. Do you really believe that the way God set about saving the world is the way God wants you to live your life? Do you believe it will work? Pursue meekness, pursue lowliness, pursue obscurity. This is one of Matthew's most distinctive features in his gospel compared to the other gospels. Matthew holds up this sharp contrast between the humility and the meekness shown by Jesus, the servant, during his life, his first coming to earth, over against, in Matthew's gospel, the glory of his future coming, when he will come as judge, and he will not be meek, and he will not be lowly. And for a Christian Life often boils down to this question. How are you going to live your life now? How are you going to change your friends now? You have friends you want to be different. Are you going to seek to change them through meekness or force? Spouses, children, parents. Kids, teenagers, your parents tick you off because all you teenagers in the room have jerks for parents. We all know that. We had the same parents when we were teenagers. Teenagers, how are you going to get them to do what you want them to do and to stop doing the things you don't want them to do? Are you going to pursue your relationship with your parents in meekness or are you going to try to get them to change through force? If you really believe that Jesus is coming back and those who have been treated unjustly, those of us who have been harmed and hurt, we will be vindicated in the second coming. If you believe that, you can be meek in the meantime. Because in that moment, when you are faced with the choice of retaliation or dominating, or waiting patiently. 
if you believe that when God comes back, he will win the day and those who chose meekness will inherit the earth. And it will not be in that moment like a football game with two opposing opponents. When God returns like that, it will not be a football game. It's not going to be a back and forth. When God shows up, the other team will crumble. And if we believe that, if we believe that, we can seek obscurity. If we don't believe that, then we better change things. Because that's the only hope. Meekness, humility, obscurity, lowliness. This is what the incarnation of Jesus calls us to. Now, one more thing. Not only is he king, not only is he lowly king, but there's this other thing. And it came up in all of the readings this morning in our Psalm, Psalm 72, in our Isaiah passage, Isaiah chapter 60, and in our gospel, Matthew 2 and Ephesians 3. When we look with the Magi at Jesus, we see that Jesus is king. If we continue to look, we see he's the lowly king. But let's stop, let's stop looking at Jesus and let's look with Jesus at the Magi. And when we do that in this story, notice what we see. When we do that, we can see that Jesus Christ is not only the king, he's not only the lowly king, he is the lowly king of all nations and all people. This theme has been in all of the verses we read. I mean, if you have your Bible, go back to our Psalm, Psalm 72, verse 9. May desert tribes bow down before him. This isn't a white man's religion. Verse 10, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Verse 11, may all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Verse 15, long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. Over in our Isaiah passage, if, if you got your Bible, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Verse 4, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. Verse 5, the end of it, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Verse 6, a multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Verse 7, all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. Verse 9, for the coastlands shall hope for you, the ships of Tarshish first. To bring your children from afar. The ships of Tarshish, by the way, were the slave ships. They were the ships that carried the Israelite captives in slavery away. The slave ships themselves will be turned around and will return people. What a remarkable thing. The Old Testament always said that the light of Christ will extend to the entire 
world, to every nation, every people, every tribe. Now when we come to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. We see what's so significant is this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy that the nations shall come to God, the one true God, Jesus Christ. Remember, the birth of Jesus is part of a much larger story. The story that begins on page one of the Bible with the creation of the entire world. And it culminates on the final page of the Bible with the renewal of all things around Jesus Christ. This is the story the Bible tells. And it's the most important thing that you can say about the Bible. That it is the true story of the world. And that's the whole point of Christianity. Christianity offers a story, which is the true story of the world. And the birth of Jesus, followed by his life and death and resurrection, this is the climactic moment of that story, that we are celebrating the birth of God himself in flesh as the king, the lowly king for all nations and all people. Let's celebrate that. And wherever you have doubts in any of that, look right into them. Go for them. Question your doubts. Let them out. Let them run. Take them serious. Let's be a lowly church for all nations and all people. Amen.